Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. And he who walks behind the rose did say, I will send outlanders amongst you, a man and a woman, and these outlanders will be unbelievers and profaners of the holy. And the man shall sorely test you, for he has great power, even greater than that of the blue man. The blue man, man. yes, the blue blue man. And just as the blue man was offered up to him, so shall be the unbelievers. Jason, you're giving me chills, man. I thought I was going to turn around and see little Isaac right there with this uh, (laughs) hat. I thought I was in trouble. Hey, I'll say this much for the film. When it comes to a creepy kid casting, nailed it. Ding! Wow. Hello, listeners. It's October, so we have the most unoriginal idea to discuss all horror movies this month. It's Splatter Cinema Month. The first movie we'll be discussing is 1984's Stephen King's Children of the Corn, starring Lyndall Hamilton, Peter Horton, and Courtney Gaines, directed by Fritz Kirch. This movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and 32 minutes. The movie is based on the short story Children of the Corn, written in 1977 by Stephen King. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. It began on a quiet Sunday in Gatlin, Nebraska. That was the day the children slaughtered all the grown-ups. Isaac, the boy preacher, told them that he who walks behind the rose was pleased. And three years later, the children still follow Isaac and his evil teenage disciple Malachi. When a young couple traveling cross-country accidentally drive into Gatlin, they begin to discover the town's terrible secrets. However... What they don't realize is that they have become part of the children's bloody mission, a mission that cannot be fulfilled until the two intruders are dead. Children of the corn. So that was what's on the box. Uh, Let's move on to our earliest memories of this film. Jason, do you have any earliest memories of children of the corn? I don't. I really don't. And that's because I've never seen this movie before. And that's because I was a scary cat. As a kid, that's why I was going to use a different word to describe what I was. And that would have been inappropriate. But let's just say uh, I just couldn't get up the nerve. I was not a horror fan as a young man. It just that stuff creeped me out. I don't you know, to be honest, now that I think about it, this really made me kind of go back and consider my history with the horror genre. And it probably I probably didn't watch full horror movies well until late high school. I didn't want to be scared. I wasn't one of those people that likes to be scared. And there are those people. That's great. I I mean, that literally, or just get a thrill out of being scared or have, it's a fun, entertaining feeling. It's an adrenaline rush. It's a certain high. I don't get that. I get angry. (laughs) Somebody scares me. Um, or uh, just embarrassed, maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. But um, so I've never seen this movie. 
I'd heard of it, you know, so my earliest memories uh, have to be either from the poster, random images, or possibly the trailer. Um, I'm sure I caught a piece of the trailer on TV at some point. So my earliest memories of Children of the Corn are corn, cornfields, corn stalks, a creepy kid in suspenders. That would have been, uh, I don't even know if he wears suspenders. I remember, I thought he was wearing suspenders. Courtney Gaines, somebody's wearing suspenders in this. That's what I remembered. Uh, but I do remember Courtney Gaines, his face, the actor who plays Malachi, a creepy town in the middle of nowhere, like in the Midwest somewhere that I could recall that imagery, of course, of like the cornfields and the lone highways uh, and the lonely roads in the middle of nowhere. That's it, man. Creepy kids. And then that, yeah, that image of the poster of just the, uh, what do you call that farming tool? Is it a sickle, a sith? sickle scythe or yeah. Oh, uh, yes. You might be right. Uh, sickle might be the actual okay. appropriate. Because I'm also thinking of what does, is that technically what, like uh, the classic image of death, the cloaked, uh, oh, what yeah. he's holding? That's kind of what I think of too. But I think in the poster, though, it's probably just supposed to be a sickle. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe death has a Sith because it's more. I got to look that up now. Yes. Let's figure this out before everyone angry tweets us like you morons. Yeah, there it is. S-C-Y-T-H-E is a sickle, a scythe. That's funny. I want to think uh, the sickle is like a short scythe. If I'm even pronouncing scythe right, maybe that's Sith, scythe, Lord of the Sith. I don't know. Okay. So the sickle is like a short scythe and its blade is curved that helps in the harvesting process. The blade is usually made of steel while the handle has a wood material. The blade has various cutting edges that make the cutting of tall grass and other crops more convenient. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting to the bottom of this, but that image from the poster did freak me out. I was like, oh, that's yeah. enough. I just seeing that, I don't need to see much more. I mean, that's a, it is a creepy poster. It's a great poster. Yes, it is. So what what about you, Bill Bent? Earliest memories. I know I had not seen the movie all the way through, to be honest. So like you, I was almost kind of watching this first time. But I thought for sure I had seen bits and pieces of this movie. But then when I watched it for the podcast, I didn't remember a damn thing. <laughs> but I was like, I knew Linda Hamilton was in it. I knew there was a Malachi character in it. Of course, we knew there was tons of corn. And I mean, how many times have you been somewhere where there's cornfields and you're like, oh, God, I hope it's not children of the corn. I mean, it's mm-hmm. always a running joke for as long as I can remember. So it's always kind of been in my vernacular. But sure, I was surprised that I was like, I don't remember a thing about this movie if I have seen it or not. Yeah, it was just one of those. I think I've seen it or I know I didn't read the book. So I know it's not from that, but I thought for sure I had seen this or at least part of this movie before, but nope, watching it, I could not remember a damn thing. So it was more of just, yeah, the imagery like you, the the poster, uh, just knowing it was Stephen King. Every time you read, every time a new Stephen King movie comes out and they always, you know, let's rank Stephen King movies. You know, you are, you're always reading about it. So I knew a lot about it, but yeah, I guess I just hadn't seen it. And then, oh, Peter Horton is in this. And I remember that he was in that show 30 something. That's all I know of. Say, that's from, what I was going to ask like, too. Him from, yeah. I don't know him from anything else except for these two things. Like I didn't remember about the Isaac character at all. And uh, yeah, he just looks like a little evil Amish boy. Yeah. Really wasn't that much 
I can remember about. I just, I just always kind of remember the running the joke where you know you're at a cornfield and you're like, oh god, I hope it's not children with corn. Yeah, I didn't really have that much on earliest memories myself. You bring up a good point. You know, always a running joke. I remember this this movie also. Yes, being present, like it was in the culture, like pop culture of the time, like it was in my orbit. People would talk about it, so I would hear about it that it was freaky and or creepy. But you're right in speaking of the corn, the cornfields. And if you've ever driven through the Midwest, uh, I personally being from a suburb of uh, Chicago, uh, but you go through now, this was filmed a great deal in Iowa states such as that. It is all about the setting. It's all about the setting. And it's a great setting for a horror film because of the desolate nature of it. There's uh, an eeriness to it. I mean, I, you know what comes to mind immediately? A much more recent film called Signs. I mean, there you go. That's oh, yeah. what it's all about. And and, I, and they utilize it to its utmost. I, I love that because there's an inherent creepiness. You don't know what's in the fields and you can easily get lost in the fields. I mean, that's why you go to... Uh, a Halloween festival, or uh, they have them out here out in Ventura County. It's the Underwood Farms, I believe, is what they're called. There's a great corn maze. Oh, yeah. Uh, Been know, in that one. That's, yeah, excellent. They're awesome. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get lost in those things. I mean, and you don't know what's out there, and especially at night and you, the, when it's so quiet, especially like out on a farm in the Midwest and oh, yeah. nowhere, and that's all you hear the breeze and it goes through the, the stalks and you can hear the kind of wish, but you don't know what, what's hiding out there. Just the, the thought of getting lost out there as well and uh, get getting disoriented and uh, losing your sense of direction. It just, there's a lot of horrifying aspects to the whole thing. So, yeah, all about the setting. But, yeah, I was too scared to watch this movie, man, until now, until just today. Just, <laughs> just today. today. I finally got up the nerve. Hours ago. After 30 years. But I did have uh, just a few initial thoughts, one being that – Probably the reason why you don't remember a lot of this film, Bill Ban, is because this movie is hot garbage. <laughs> I say that, come on, ladies and gentlemen, listeners out there, little tongue in cheek. It's for a little comedic effect, folks. It's not total hot garbage. I just, it's interesting because we talk a lot about on this podcast, our nostalgic attachment to these films. It's the then and now perspective. I have no then perspective. I have no attachment to this film. Right. So that makes such a huge difference in this particular case. I mean, because I'm looking at it now. Uh, the effects are horrible, except for, I have to admit, the practical effect of the he who walks behind the rose coming from underneath the ground, moving underground. That effect was cool. That practical effect, I thought, was pretty cool. Uh, very creepy. But outside of that, I don't know what's going on half the time. I Anyway, I had a lot of issues with this film. We'll get into it. It's going to be fun to break this one down. That all being said, I do see how, I, if I put myself in 11-year-old Jason's shoes, this would have probably scared the living crap out of me. Oh, yeah. It would have been terrifying. No doubt about it especially at that time, because you think about, okay, we all, we, we talk about firsts, right. In our lives and growing up and going through, we talk about the coming of age movies and the first time you did this or did that or experienced this or that in your life. 
And at that time in the 80s, when there were so many new things happening in cinema and horror has always been a mainstay, like it's always been a, a surviving genre in film. But it was a new thing to me. And these different concepts of being how you can scare people and do that. The whole concept was just so freaky to me. I was obviously, like I said, too scared to watch it. So I can see back then being like, oh, I've never seen it. Like, this is just way too creepy for me. I, I, this is, this concept hadn't entered my mind. These kind of demonic kids that have murdered all the adults in a town residing in this, you know, cornfield and practicing rituals. And it was just too much for me. But now today, I've just had too much experience. We're, we've seen every horror film inside. Now it's hard to come up with original concepts. I don't know if you're following me a little bit, but it's like, it felt like a lot of the horror films when I was growing up seemed to be so, felt so original, whether they weren't, they were or weren't, I don't know. So having such a full library of the horror genres just been around for so long and it feels like things have been done to death. It's just so many different tropes and different ways of killing people in movies and all these things or supernatural thrillers, whatever it may be. We just get numb to it. That's all. So then I, I watch this now as a 47 year old and I'm like, wow, this is, this is not effective. This is not a successful movie and what I believe it's trying to accomplish. Um, but we'll get into, I, I still had some favorite moments, man. This was still fun to watch. I'm glad I saw it. So like you said, Bill Bant, this is a Stephen King adaptation. He had written a draft of this, but it was taken over by, I believe it's George Goldsmith, who actually is credited as the writer. However, it's still based on a Stephen King short story. And I love Stephen King. I love the way he writes. I love how he weaves fantasy into reality uh, or horror fiction, I should say. And it doesn't always work. And it takes a real, real soft touch, I think, as a director or filmmaker to put together a successful Stephen King adaptation on film uh, hasn't been done quite that often considering how many adaptations out there are out there. So because when you have such a cool or creepy, let's just say creepy horror concept, and then you, end, you, you add the fantasy element to that concept, if it is not done correctly, the suspension of disbelief goes right out the window and it just comes off as ridiculous. And that happened for me in this. Again, watching it as a 47-year-old, I'm a lot more critical. I just am. Like I said, they nailed the creepy kid casting with Isaac. Uh, Jonathan Franklin, I believe, is the actor um, who plays Isaac. Yes. Great casting. We know Courtney Gaines is great as Malachi, very memorable. Uh, seeing a young Linda Hamilton, a.k.a. Sarah Connor. Yes. I mean, so cool. She's great. And we are introduced to... Linda Hamilton at the beginning of the film. Uh, she's in the hotel room. Oh boy. Here we go. I actually appreciated this scene. I actually didn't put it in my favorite scenes, but I appreciate it because it sets you up to think it's, there's going to be a scare here because the cold open has already happened. Now we're at this ho uh, hotel room and we see uh, bare feet walking across the floor. We know that Peter Horton, who plays the character Bert, is asleep and we think something bad is going to happen to him. But as it turns out, he's just asleep and it's his birthday. And uh, his girlfriend, Vicky played by Linda Hamilton wakes him up and uh, says happy birthday and does a little celebration for him and decides to put on a song on a little tape recorder and does the 
a song and dance. Like she's, but she's not even lip singing. She's actually singing the song. My yes. gosh, she has a pretty decent voice, but she's dancing kind of in her, her shirt. Um, like and she's not fully dressed. She's just kind of looking cute and adorable, like just having woken up and doing this thing. And Bill, all I could think of was, I'm sorry, I com- I can't, I can't help it, Bill. Man. I compare them all to Elizabeth okay. Shue. If there's a song and dance by a young la- lady at the beginning of a film to kind of get you, you know, into the, the relationship aspect of the film, or if there's going to be a love story, love theme, the bar was set high by Elizabeth Shue. And it's tough to meet that. Bar. Even though Elizabeth Shue is only lip syncing in Adventures of Babysitting, that's where it's at. I give props to now, granted, this film also is like five years before, or no, I'm sorry, a few years, three years, right? It was Adventures in Babysitting 87? Correct. And this is 84. So this is a few years before. So Linda Hamilton did it first. And I give her, you know, I give her a solid seven out of 10. Thought she did, she did, you know, with Elizabeth Shue being a 10. If you're going to open. That's a nice grade, Jason. I'm going to be, I thought she was good. When I saw the scene, I was like, oh my God, Jason's going to freaking rip this to shreds. No, I thought, I thought she was very cute. And the fact it gave her a seven. Well, the distance between the seven and 10, pretty uh, wide margin, actually. I don't remember Linda Hamilton ever releasing an album in the eighties. Her singing voice. Uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm trying to be kind here. I like Linda Hamilton as an actress. We are all aware of my affections for Elizabeth Shue. Yes, in the healthiest of ways. And so does Elizabeth Shue's lawyer. <laughs> so, anywho, this movie did not work for me. This is the type of movie, Bill, I would have loved to watch with yourself and some other friends of mine. Just that's this is the kind of movie you want to see with a group of people at a party, right? Oh, yeah. And just to have total fun with it. You can make fun of it if you even know what's coming for those people who have seen it a million times and do have that nostalgic attachment to it. Uh, you can have a lot of fun with this movie, I would imagine, in a group atmosphere, mm-hmm. in a party atmosphere. But um, yeah, do you have any... Like initial thoughts upon watching this now? Well, just speaking of that opening scene with Lynn Hamilton walking across, I was like, you couldn't pay me enough money to walk barefoot on that carpet at that hotel. I'll tell you that right there. That was the scariest part right there. God knows. Now, what's what's wrong with her fear? What kind of fungal things? Oh, She's not going to have grown off later. That freaked me out. I'll be honest about that. That's a great horror setting unto itself, right? Yes. Which was yes. done many times in the 80s as well. Yeah. Motel hell, man. I thought the premise and the idea of this movie is pretty cool. The fact that these kids get rally behind this preacher, this little preacher kid who's supposedly nine at the beginning of the movie and then wipe out all the adults. Anyone over the age of 19. Goodbye. And then just follow this cult of whatever he who walks among the corn of the road or whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out what exactly they were worshiping. But then, yeah, the execution was, I I needed to know a little bit more, not too much more. I just needed a little bit more because sometimes if you know too much, it does ruin it. But I think this withheld way too much. No doubt about it. I kind of need to understand why the kids are following this. Right. Are they somehow possessed? The whatever this creature is can hold on to like youth, like youthful souls or something. Every kid turns except for two. 
so and again, what is it about those two kids, Joe and Sarah? What is it about those two that they're they're not drinking the Kool Aid? I, well, I, I need to know a little bit about that too. I mean, we kind of found Sarah kind of has a special ability, which I thought was kind of neat. She has the gift of sight. She's coloring drawings that are her premonitions. Yeah, she has these visions and she's drawing them. But unfortunately, the they're not future. very long term. Right, kind of like immediate future. Yeah, so I just needed a little more of that somehow intertwined in the movie. Like I am a Stephen King fan too, and I I've read a couple of his books. But yeah, I always see he always seems to have that issue too, where like he like he builds up something and then you get to the payoff. You're like, uh, uh, that was it. Oh, there's no payoff. And I, I see that a lot in this film. It is a lot different from the short story. And we'll get into that and in, in fun facts and trivia. I was like, oh, there's something here, but it just doesn't work. But there's 10 other movies based on this premise. So right. people like it. They got something right. Well, which is weird, too, because I thought for sure, I'm like, oh, we're going to have to do Children of the Corn 2 at some point. That didn't come out for another like eight or nine years. And then it's since crazy. then, they've done like 10 of their movies. And not only sequels, but a, the latest film was a prequel. It came out last year. Maybe, yeah, maybe I need to see that so I can understand. I th- you, you've, really, you've really nailed it, Bill, because I love this concept. And you talk about Stephen King and probably his number one criticism was exactly as you stated with it's a resolution problem. Mm-hmm. It happens in the third act. Because you have some of his books like um, that have been made into films such as uh, Stand By Me or Misery, where they're a little bit more based in reality. And those films, those two I actually just named, are adored. And then when you get into the films that or books or written works he's done that, you know, uh, entertain that fantasy element, that's where people get either you're on the train or you're not. And it doesn't quite for some come full circle at the end, or is it uh, quite as impactful? I love this concept. And there's something to be said, because like you said, there's so many sequels, because obviously people wanted to know more. And there's another issue sometimes in these films, as we all know, and especially as writers, when you are dealing with exposition, when you're letting the audience in to the background of your world, of your characters, relationships, et cetera, so that the audience is somewhat grounded in in the story what they're the journey they're about to go on they have to have some information instead of being just dropped in the middle of something and trying to figure it out throughout and in this particular case for this particular film we could have used a little more background info we just needed to know a little bit more and what we do know as far as the setup and there is there is a little bit of exposition from time to time there's a line that you catch here or there but it, it's kind of vague. So we understand that at some point, an otherworldly being known as he who walks behind the rose has taken over this cornfield in Gatlin, Nebraska. And all of the corn has gone dead. And the townsfolk are trying to figure out what the problem is. And when this otherworldly creature or being, it's a supernatural force that's taken over this cornfield, has lured these kids into the field. And these kids are led by this, the creepiest of them all, Isaac. And they somehow have been like brainwashed by this supernatural force. 
and they are instructed to kill all the adults in this town. But when all those kids are kind of summoned to the cornfield and gathered there and are basically possessed, if you will, by this, this being, this otherworldly supernatural force, the two kids that were introduced to in the beginning of this movie, Job and Sarah, they weren't with those kids in the field. They were lucky enough not to go into the field with Isaac and the other kids. So they were separated. They did, didn't succumb to the, you know, the power of this supernatural force. And then on top of it, you have the fantastical element of that Sarah, the one of the two kids that escaped this evil being, Sarah has this gift, a supernatural power unto herself. She has this power of sight and she draws these images of the immediate future. And so we're like, whoa, whoa. First of all, what is the supernatural force? What is that force? Is there this evil being? What's his or hers purpose? What's the, the motivation? What's that being's intention? What does he want with the cornfield? What does he want to do? What's the whole idea here? Right. You do not know that. Telling all these kids to kill the adults in the town. What's the whole why? We just want to know why. And where did it come from? The setup for this film is that we know that these kids were somehow possessed by this supernatural force. And the cold open takes place in this cafe where these kids come in with all these knives and, and sickles or whatever in, in weapons. And they lock the door behind them. It's a kind of a creepy situation. You know, and they poison the coffee and kill all the adults. And only Job, who at this point is just a young boy, is spared because he's a child. And we're, and we're off. And then it cuts to what, three years later? Yeah. So there you go, folks. If you haven't seen Children of the Corn, I hope that setup worked for you, but it's confusing. Yeah, because there was another question that confused me too, because I thought maybe Isaac was a manifestation of he who walks behind the rose. Right. And then when Malachi turns on him, how's he able to do that? I thought Isaac is somehow it's channeling. All, like powerful. Like, yeah, yeah. he is channel, like, yeah, channeling the power of he who walks behind the rose. Yeah, I thought it was like a, you know, he was like a little village of the damn kid or something like that. Oh, and there are very much religious overtones throughout this film, too. Oh, big time. Folks, that's the whole thing. I mean, he who walks behind the rose, uh, a child shall lead them, mm -hmm. um, is written in blood in the church and the walls, etc. There's Bible references, you know, so this has biblical overtones, references, etc. throughout. It's supposed to. Yeah. And then another thing I really wanted to know, what was so bad about becoming an adult? Because one of the things you do find out in the movie is once right. you hit 19... You sacrifice yourself to he who walks behind the rose. It's your Kool-Aid drinking time. Big time. Yep. Yeah, you've done double shots of that at that point. Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot. Of, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff just out there that is just kind of, oh, I really need at least some dots on the eyes for some of these. And you would think that because the, the story actually follows this couple. Now, we'd mentioned Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton, who play our protagonists, Vicky and Bert. And Jason, and, yes. every time I heard Bert, all I could hear, all in the back of my eye, all I hear is Ernie going, hey, Bert. <laughs> every time I heard his name, that voice went in my head every you time. You do not hear hear that as a protect or a character name that yeah. often, do you? Yeah, you can't, you can't name a main character, Bert. You just can't. All, all, all I could I think, think of was Bert Ernie. Reynolds. The actor, yeah, I mean, the but actor. he never played Bert, so that was no, fine. Yeah. yeah. But That's no. hilarious. You're I, thinking I, Sesame Ernie. Street. Yep. Ernie, every time. Every time he said Bert. Hey, Bert. 
That is fantastic. So we're following Bert and Vicky as they are on a road trip up to, they're supposed to be going to Seattle. And right. he has an internship uh, in the medical profession. He's working towards being a doctor, right? Yes. And so he's with his girl and they're moving up to Seattle. They're doing this thing. He's a, has got a little fear commitment. They're trying to do a little set, little relationship background between the two of them. And then of course they're traveling cross country and doing the old back roads thing. Yep. Going through the cornfields. And just before they even, just before they get to Gatlin kind of all hell breaks loose. Cause this kid, Joseph, Walks out into the middle of the street with his throat slit. God, and, Joseph, what a way to go! Know, that not not good, not no. good. And they hit him with his their car because Bert wasn't paying attention just for a split second. Really, not his fault. It's that's well, anyway. We'll we'll get we'll get into it. But that's kind of the setup. There is that. Then these this couple gets stranded in in Gatlin, and they try to put together the pieces. And then they, of course, are victims of this whole horror scene where these kids are obeying the supernatural master and have to kill all the adults that come into town. So that's your basic concept. And it's just, it's weird. It's really cool. If we just knew more and I I bring up the protagonists of Vicky and Bert, because we were, I'm thinking, Oh, maybe they're the audience's avatar, right? That we're, they're going to be figuring it out as we're figuring it out. No, those two are clueless. Jesus Christ. What the fuck? I'm like, I just, in my notes, Bill, I'm going, Bert's dumb. This is dumb. That's dumb. He's an idiot. What a fucking moron. Because they're just dumb. Yeah. I, two seconds, you know, I'm an abandoned town. Yeah. Get the F out. Yep. Pick a direction and keep going. Yeah. I thought it would have been cooler if it was more established that they couldn't get out, that they somehow, right. like every time they were driving to come out, they kept coming back in. Like they kind of touched on it. But I think they needed to hammer that idea home. And that Agreed. would have maybe helped them a little bit more like, all right, now we have to explore the town to figure out the clues to get the hell out of here. That's that's where I kind of went with it. There had to have been more of an, an established obstacle. Yes. Because we are led to believe that the actual cornfields or cornfield is the obstacle because mm-hmm. they kind of go in a circle and end up back at the gas station. but they didn't even need gas. Like I thought that was just going to be it, that they ran out of gas and they'd be stranded in the town. Yes. Like just nice and easy, right? There you go. Or I thought the car, when they hit Joseph in the middle of the freaking highway, the car would have busted, was busted up like a radiator leak or whatever. And they would have needed repairs, but no, they just decide to, because Gatlin is the closest town. They just kind of give into that fact and decide to explore Gatlin, which is the creepiest freaking place ever. And Bert, in all his wisdom, just keeps this. It just decides, oh, yeah, this is really weird. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to keep looking around. I'm going to keep investigating. I'm going to stay here until something happens. Like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Just leave. God, now this brings up another issue because <laughs> we're, not we even, already, we're not even sticking yeah, out. We're skipping ahead to switch cheese and complaints. But all right, I'll say this and then we'll try to move on to the okay, next all right, segment. All right. It's frustrating because this could have been really cool. The kids make it seem like they don't want the interlopers in the town. So doing everything they can 
to make sure they steer clear of Gatlin and go on their way. Yet they wind up in Gatlin. Is that because he who walks behind the roads really wants them? And he's telling the kids one thing and he's doing another. Like, I didn't understand that. All right. They tell the guy. At there's the, contradictory. Yeah. yeah there's a contradictory gas station, thing going on there. Send them on their way. We don't want them here. Because they were, see this. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. The whole idea is no adults in Gatlin. No adults allowed. Right. Any adult hangs out in Gatlin, you're getting killed by the kids. They're going to kill you. Kids rule the town. That's it. And the cornfield. And they obey their master. So the gas station attendant does his job in just saying, I have no gas. I have nothing for you. You need to move on. Go to, was it Hemingford? What is, what's the other town? Hemingford. Yes, it is Hemingford. So 19 miles, Hemingford, keep driving. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, see ya. And that's it. But then we learn, like you said, that it gets confusing. Then we learn that according to Isaac and Malachi, there's an offering that is supposed to be made that night to he who walks behind the rose. Right, which is supposed to be that kid. Which is supposed to be Amos, right? who's turning 19. And yes. his rite of passage is he sacrifices himself to he who walks behind the rose. So they didn't need these adults. I guess the fact of the matter is Bert and Vicky just stuck their nose in too far. I guess. I don't know. Because I thought he followed the directions and then gets stuck in the cornfield and then ends up back at the gas station. So it has, I agree. It has the feel as though they were lured into a trap or forced to stay there one way or another, because yeah. you're, you're led to believe that the signs are confusing the actual street signs because mm -hmm. they keep coming across the, there's these street signs that simply say Gatlin and then the mile uh, number, meaning two miles to Gatlin, seven miles to Gatlin. Then it keeps getting, but it gets less and less and it makes it more alluring to them to just go to Gatlin because finally they're just lost and they keep going through the cornfield for some reason. I don't know why they decide to drive through the cornfield in the first place, but they end up finally seeing a sign that says Gatlin one mile. And he's like, all right, see if we can find a phone. Mm -hmm. And I do understand that. So what's been set up here, which we didn't really make clear is that before they get to Gatlin, we had mentioned that they hit a kid in the middle of the road when they were driving. Right. But what happened right before that is we understand that these evil kids that are ruling this town, we know Job and Sarah are the two good kids. There actually was another kid named Joseph who was trying to escape. He wasn't possessed. He didn't believe in the cause. He didn't fall prey to the this false god or whatever. So he says to Sarah and Job, he says, I'm getting out. I got my suitcase. I'm out. Don't tell anybody but I'm going to come back for you or I'll find help, et cetera. He takes off, runs through the cornfield. The other kids, the possessed kids, the evil kids get wind of it. And they, they cut him up, slit his throat. He's bleeding. He wanders into the middle of the street or the highway. And that's when Bert and Vicky driving along hit him. Just finish him off. Yeah. He was dead anyway. He was already, he was going to die, but this is all bad timing. They run over him and end up putting his body into their trunk. So that's an obstacle, technically. They're trying to do something about this poor dead kid that they hit in the middle of the road who's now in their trunk. And so there is a little bit of a time constraint or, you know, whatnot, a problem here they're trying to overcome. They've got to find a way to report this to somebody. So I guess have to stop in Gatlin to try and find some help. 
sorry to make, yeah, that long-winded folks, but the thing is it, it's a little convoluted as to the why. All right. So now since the last 10 minutes, we've been ripping this film to shreds. <laughs> hey, why don't we talk about our favorite scenes and moments of the movie? Uh, this might be a really quick segment. I don't know. So Jason, do you have any favorite <laughs> scenes or moments from Children of the Corn that we could share with the audience? I do have some favorite ones. I, I'm going to just uh, bring up the scene we were just talking about. So when Joseph unfortunately meets his demise in, in the cornfields because he, the other kids do catch him as he's trying to escape. There was a good scare that I, I was looking for some good scares in this now as a more mature adult feeling as though I can handle the scare uh, and have a little fun with this. But that one got me, even though, you know, it's coming when it's that typical, it's the two shot of, uh, Bert and Vicky, they're driving and they're looking at the map and you know he keeps looking down. He's not paying attention to the road. And you oh, know yeah. Joseph's wandering around in the, whatever, in the fields. And you're like, oh boy, he's not. Okay, something's going to happen. He's going to hit something in the road. And it's a really quick cut. It's a great edit where all of a sudden you see Joseph standing in the middle of the road, bleeding all over. And boom. I mean, yep. they nail him and run over that kid. It is That is a horrific moment. Yes. Uh, you can sort of tell it's a dummy, you know, but it still like was pretty effing brutal. That's yeah. a brutal moment. So that was a good horror moment, I felt. And then it leads to a couple of good moments after that because Peter Horton, an aspiring doctor, he gets out and goes back to see the body and he's like, uh, this is bad. He sees that this kid's throat has been slit and he knows the kid was going to be dead anyway. So something is rotten in Denmark. And this is when he makes his first really dumb moron idiot decision is like, I'm going to walk into the cornfields yes. and see who's out. If there's a murderer out there in our midst. Even Vicky is like, couldn't the killer still be around? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go in the corn though. Yeah. That's okay. He only has a knife. I'm going to, I'm going to walk directly into somebody else's backyard. Like basically if there's somebody hiding in there, they have the upper hand. And I'm just going to walk right in there and see if they're there. What are you doing, man? What are you doing? So that's not my favorite moment. However, when idiot goes into the fields and he finds the bloody suitcase that Joseph was carrying, it cuts back to Vicky in the car who got a bump on her head as a result of the accident. She's kind of half out of it. She's got the doors locked or whatever. And we see an image of Malachi creeping up behind the car with his knife we're like, okay, this is bad for her now, but she's inside the car. She, of course, unlocks the door, gets out. Malachi has disappeared somehow. She walks back to Joseph's body, laying under a blanket, laying in the middle of the road, takes the blanket off. Great scare. Even again, you kind of see it coming. Joseph just like sits up all, all of a sudden and like right into her face as if he's a lot like a zombie. And then she snaps out of it, wakes up, and it was a little nightmare. She just had a brief nightmare. Bert's there saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And she's fine. There's a good little scare there. So there's a couple of scares within a little a matter of a few minutes and a brutal horror moment. It's a creepy scenario altogether because it's a lone highway in the middle of this cornfield. So the setting's great, as we described earlier. That's my first favorite scene and or moments. That's a good one. I really liked how they did the opening credits with Sarah's pictures. Very cool. Very cool. Because, you know, we kind of stated already in the opening scene, it is the kids basically overtaking the town and murdering all the adults. And then it cuts into the credits and 
the story is told through Sarah's picture. So it's showing like all the kids murdering the townsfolk and everything that's kind of happening through the pictures. I was like, you got more story out of these little girls pictures than you ever do through the rest of the movie. Um, But I thought it was really cool. I was like, Oh yeah, this is a, a really interesting premise on how to do this. So I thought that was really cool. I just, uh, her, her little drawings. It's a great device. I, yeah. I thought it was cool too. And I was looking very closely at those drawings, trying to be like, oh, are they going to actually, because sh- they're premonitions of what's to come. And I was looking at them going, oh, are we going to get little hints as to what's going to happen in the movie? Be like, when is it going to happen? So we're watching the movie going, oh, I know what's going to, when is it going to happen? I saw yeah. the drawing. When is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. That that device was a little underused, I felt, in the movie. Another cool, like, fantasy element, sort of, she has this weird power. It's a common trope, as it turns out, but always effective to me. Kind of like the psychic. You know, it's always the psychic in a horror movie, right? Yeah, because it was weird, because when the movie starts and Job's doing the narration, for some reason, I tuned him out right away. So I wasn't really paying attention to what he was listening to. And I was like, oh, crap, this is kind of important, I think. I got to go back and listen to this. When I saw those pictures during the credits, that really, I was like, oh, I got to pay attention to this and really watch what was happening. I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. I don't know. That did it for me. But the opening narration, not so much. Good stuff, though. That is a great call. My other favorite moment, again, because I'm just a fan of the fantasy aspect of things when you're trying to incorporate, because I love that suspension of disbelief when these just strange occurrences are happening. So. This is about halfway through the movie, a little bit more, maybe closer to about an hour in the movie, when we understand that this he who walks behind the rose is in the cornfields. And I like the the title of this supernatural force, he who walks behind the rose, although it's a mouthful, it's still kind of like the rose of corn, like he's hiding behind the rose of corn. Very ominous, nebulous, we don't know what it is but it controls that region. They know that these creepy kids are running around the town. And he, I believe at this point, he had gone to investigate. And that was another of the the 17 or 20 different dumb idiot moves he does is he leaves Vicky alone. She's with young Sarah in this house. And the kids come and capture Vicky. He locked the front door. What's that? He locked the front I mean, door. He did lock the front door. That does yeah. a lot. That does a lot of good yeah. against a bunch, a group of, you know, a gang of kids with weapons. So Vicky gets kidnapped by the, the gang and they're tying her to like this corn stalk cross, like a crucifixion type of thing to be offered to he who walks behind the rose. Like it's very creepy. That part's definitely creepy. She has like, they even put like a, not a, they put like a headband thing on her. Like it's just. Yeah very sacrificial sort of thing, uh, ritualistic t- sort of thing, very creepy. Meanwhile, Bert's fucking off somewhere, and he comes back to the house looking for her. She's gone, but Sarah tells him, oh, they're out in the clearing in the middle of the cornfield, and he trying to find Vicky because she's been taken by the kids. And he walks up to the cornfield, and all of a sudden the corn splits Yes, for him. I love that moment. I was like, that's cool. That is cool. I would have turned and ran the other way. Right. <laughs> Bye, Vicky. Bye, Vicky. <laughs> See ya. I moved in I'm with Ernie. Yeah. 
<laughs> if I ever see corn do that, I'm I was like, for a second, there, I was like, Who, who's Ernie? And I'm like, anywho, the corn stalks like presenting a path for Bert to walk through the cornfield. I just thought, I just like that moment. It's not even a scene. And of course, Bert walks right into the cornfield. Oh, yeah. And then he hears, oh, I think he is trying to go to find Vicky, but he hears the, uh, the bell from the church ringing and then he goes over to the church and that's when he walks in to see Amos preparing for his sacrifice and all the kids and then he decides to tell the kids that they're all a bunch of morons and it's just a weird scene but yeah anyway it was just another little fantasy element with the 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 corn stalks kind of dividing I thought it was a cool moment do you have any other yeah I liked the scene because it made me chuckle was um when Bert and Vicky find Sarah in the house so, mm-hmm. so at some point, you know, they go in the Gatlin, they're exploring, they can't find anything. So they actually come to, cool, hey, we should probably leave and go to the other town. And while they're leaving, Bart's got to stop the car. It's like, oh, I think I saw someone go in the front door of that house. Right. So I was like, oh, shit. Don't do that. And classic knock, knock on the door. Hello. Hello. No one's there or no one's responding. Yep. Let's just walk right in. And um, Perk goes up stairs explores the house you have your little jump scare because then vicky comes up and they run into each other right and then they come across sarah who's in one of the rooms she's doing her drawings and they try to talk to her and the conversation was just great where are your parents they're in the cornfield yeah maybe that's what they did with all the bodies it's like is there any adults around or you know what are they doing are they having a meeting are they working no isaac has them who's isaac isaac's in charge well, can we talk to Isaac? Isaac's evil. And you're just like, oh, it was just making me laugh. It was just great because it's like, <laughs> just tell them the whole goddamn story. You know, it's like he's just throwing little clues and, and confusing them and upsetting Bert. But as the audience, you know exactly what she's talking about. And you're just like, oh, you dumb shits. You're in such trouble. You don't right. want to meet Isaac. Just tell them to leave. Just tell them to leave you have an opportunity to get out of there. Like, let's go find my brother and let's get the hell out of here. But they don't do that. But I don't know. I just found it funny. It's just the like way answer the questions. That is a, a nice little back and forth because the house is creepy. And this little girl is up in her room playing a little 45 record on a little record player. Yeah. The, runaway. the song is runaway. Yeah. Great song. They burst into her room and there she is just by herself doing her drawings. And they have that great conversation. I love this is a really nice moment for the fans of Linda Hamilton and her films, of course, because she kneels down and says, what's your name? And the little girl goes, Sarah. And all of us are like, Sarah Connor. Yes. <laughs> because of course, Linda Hamilton would go on after this film to famously take on the role of Sarah Connor in the Terminator, which made her famous. Yeah. So nice moment there uh, before this scene that Bill was talking about. You're great. That is a great point though with the questions that they're asking and she's just giving them little little breadcrumbs mm-hmm. and we all know as the audience like oh you guys are fucked yes. <laughs> yeah and then it does roll into a, a good moment too where um vicky asks her to do a drawing and you know, she does the drawing she's like what's this she's like oh it's you and then you see the picture of vicky getting dragged off with right. the kids and you're like oh shit yeah that Vicky's was kind of like, cool too. Why did you try this? Yeah. I was like, oh, you're in trouble. Do you have anything else? I'm going to jump all the way to literally the very, the very end. 
Oh, the credits? Because it was over? That was your right. Huh? It was right before the credits. I thought there actually was a decent scare. So uh, this is the very end of the film where it's after the resolution, actually. All is finally, well, somewhat well, I suppose. Uh, the baddie supernatural force has been eradicated. We have Bert and Vicky and the two little kids, Job and Sarah, going back to the car. And the car's covered in corn stalks, so the car's inoperable. But Bert gets into the front seat, and boom, jump scare. Rachel is in the back seat. Little Rachel has one of the evil little girls from the town, et cetera. She's got her own little sickle weapon, I believe. Something happens, but Bert gets out of the car, and Rachel comes right at him. And Vicky slams the door on her face, knocks her out cold. So I like that was another scare that got me a little bit. I didn't kind of expect that. There's a great the final quote. It's so just so out of nowhere and out of place. But at the same time, it's just kind of fun because Bert says, oh, boy, she's out cold. What are we going to do now? And Vicky is just she's Vicky's just done with the whole freaking thing. And she's like, send her a get well card from Seattle. Let's get the hell out of here. And that's the last line of the movie. Walk off credits roll. Drop the mic moment for Vicky. Uh, so yeah, that common horror movie trope, you got to have one last scare right at the very, very end before yeah. it's officially over. It's never over until it's over. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, we've already done this segment already, but let's officially <laughs> do it now. So it's do it. uh, the Swiss cheese, the complaints department. Why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, and do you just yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say for this segment, you know, to for this particular podcast, we're gonna call this segment He Who Walks Behind the Holes. Yes, he who walks behind the hole. All right, Jason, do you have any Swiss cheese or complaints left about this movie? You know, you brought one up earlier. Job's narration. Okay. What do we need it? Does it, why is he narrating in this movie at all? Like he has some narration in the beginning to kind of explain it. I think it literally was, had to have been added in posts where they're like, oh, we need to explain a couple things here and we can't show it. So we've got to say it somehow. Yeah, he has it in the very beginning in the cold open. Then he has a little narration with Joseph when Joseph is trying to escape. And then he comes back in with some narration at the very end. I was like, I almost forgot there was narration. I'm like, wow, this is unnecessary. Why is there narration? Yeah, I don't think you needed it, to be honest. It doesn't really tell you anything. I mean, it just it's one of those things where it's out of place. If you were going to do more with it or if it was going to be a constant throughout the film, it's not like Morgan Freeman and Shawshank Redemption. Speaking of another Stephen King film. Yeah. It's just unnecessary. You know, speaking of, I keep bringing up that scene with Joseph when they hit him with the car. So morbid. <laughs> but there's a major, major continuity error that's just blatant. Because they hit him and Bert literally kneels down and turns his body over so he's face up. And then Bert goes to his trunk and they cut back to Joseph on the street and he's face down again. He's flipped over. It's like, oh, guys, did you not? He just turned him over. Yeah. Why is he face down now? And then it comes back to him and he's face up again. It was just a weird continuity error. That's a bad one. I thought that was obvious. Maybe not that obvious. Go ahead. I've got, I've got a, uh, I've got just got a few or 300 complaints. Okay. So you start with a pick. If you have a hole, yeah, like I have, a real plot hole. Yeah. I have one Swiss cheese and then yeah, everything after this is going to the complaint department. Okay. 
So the beginning of the film, all the kids, okay, murder all the adults. Right. We flash forward three years later. Right. We go back to the town. We see the kids. They're all exactly the same age. Same age. <laughs> Wouldn't Malachi have aged out at this point? Shouldn't he have already been sacrificed? Because I'm sure he was like 16 or 17. It appears that way. So I'm like, he shouldn't even been there. He was done. Oh, this whole, the whole jumping ahead three years opens a whole can of worms here. I've, that's my, I literally have that as my next complaint. Cause then, yeah. Cause then I initially thought it was like, oh, are they now like ageless? And that's part right. of the power. Exactly. Like they had been overcome. Like the possession means they're, they stayed the same age. Right. But then we go to the church and. I've turned 19 and then there's a whole list yeah. of everyone that's dead. And I was like, what? All right. Confused again. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. And I was immediately like, there must be more to this aspect of it. Maybe there was more in the short story, the original story. I don't even know if that's true, Yeah, but I, I think it's a major problem though, because that is the first thing initially you'd notice right away. I'm like, no, they're all the same age. They look exactly the same. So that's yeah. a problem. And then I'm like, these are kids, so don't they need stuff? They're kids. The adults are gone. So yeah. what if they need a doctor? What if somebody gets sick? What are they going to do about food? What if they need more toilet paper? Yeah. I don't know why that was like a major thing. But where is there electricity? Who's going to keep the power out? Like who, who's making sure shit works in this town of Gatlin? Like how, just basic survival as children in a town with no adults for three years, they survived. Mm-hmm. Now, is that due to demonic possession? Because Isaac actually does say at one point in the film that they do need gasoline. Yes. The whole three years of time goes by the passage of time. And these kids have somehow survived in this town by themselves on their own. And have not, looks like they haven't aged and they all look like they're in pretty good health. Yes. Is off-putting. It doesn't make sense. We needed to know a little bit more as to what, what's going on with the kids. Yeah. And I was like, are they going to repopulate among themselves? And how does that all work? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all going to hit 19 at some point. And what's, what's the last kid standing do? Right. <laughs> That's a great question. Right, I'm just going to carve this symbol in my chest. And That's it. Hang myself up on the corn stalk. And then, yeah, right. And then. He who walks behind the rose will be like, oh, I guess yeah. All right. I'm done. Yep. This cornfield's empty now. No more yeah. kids. Got to move on to where are they? Where another town that's populated with a lot of kids. Yep. Uh, has a nice big cornfield for me to hide behind the rose. Yep. Heading over to Hemingford. They've got, I heard they got a nice cornfield over there. Yeah. Three years. That was a problem. Yeah. Cause again, I was also, where do the kids stay? Where do they sleep? Are they all in the same house? Are they staying in the church? We don't know anything about these damn kids. No. The next thing I yeah I put was just basically we talked about this we're we're missing some background. What is what exactly is this supernatural force? He who walks behind the rose. What's its or his or hers motivation, intention, purpose? Where did it come from? What does it want ultimately? Yeah, what is it providing the kids that they want to follow? What did it do to the kids? Why this town? Why this cornfield? What's what's the is there symbolism with corn? Why corn? We just don't know anything. It's way, way, it's too nebulous. There's nothing specific about it. Uh, Oh, this is great. Hey, you know, after just hitting a kid and running over the kid, there's a little blood splatter or spatter on the grill of the car. Little. Otherwise, otherwise, car's great. Oh, yeah. Car's running fine. 
You just hit a freaking person with your car. Mm-hmm. There's not a dent in it. Nothing happened there. Like, what's, what's going on? There's no visible damage. There's no, the car runs fine. And then you put the bloody body in your trunk. Oh, everything in the trunk now is ruined with whatever blood Joseph has left in his body. It's just pour all, all your shit back there. It was just ridiculous because they pulled, like, the first thing I was thinking is, like, then, you I just realized, into, then I just realized this at the end of the movie, they leave the car. To, that, <laughs> I have that at the end. Oh, going, okay. Dude, I am cracking up. I was cracking I just thought of that. Up. Yeah. There's a dead kid in your trunk. I'm literally like, I did this like little voice at the end. I'm like, oh, remember the dead kid trunk? <laughs> <laughs> they literally walk off like everything is fine. They're just going to walk to Hemingford at the end of the movie. And oh. I have a whole thing. We'll get to that. Poor Joseph. Jesus Christ. That poor kid. But what is happening in this movie? Like, it's like, what the? F- ah. Well, just even the fact Joseph tries to escape in the middle of the day. Come on, man. Cover night. Don't go through the cornfield, of course, but yeah, let me just go in broad daylight. I'm sure they will not see me, even if I'm going through a cornfield. Right. Kind of talk. I talked about the corn, how the corn like split, like is he who walks behind the rose must have some power over like to manipulate the corn, like can actually make the corn move and stuff like that, because the corn has like a life unto its own at some point. Like it wraps around Bert's legs and stuff. Yes. Goes very evil didn't do that to it. Joseph, but it does it to Bert. Yeah, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, the, what the corn can actually do, because it seems to have power, a power of some sort. It's very freaking confusing as yeah. to how how this. It, it what, has are the, con- what are the rules? Like that's that's just a big thing in in fantasy. What are the rules of this whole world? Convenient power. Convenient power of convenience. Yes. Whenever, yeah, uh, that's great. I've got a lot of other stuff. What else you got, man? What does it take to realize a town is empty and you should turn around and get the fuck out? Uh, it's, it's like when Burton figured, why is the first place you're going to is the cafe that's overrun with corn? You go in the police department or city hall or something. It's just common sense. Yeah. Let, yeah. Me, let me just go to a random cafe and just get a cup of coffee. Hey, uh, we got a dead kid in our trunk. Uh, where's the police? You know, I don't know. Got some, what kind of pie is that? I don't know. That was just and like. What made you think that there would be anybody in the cafe there's nobody no see this is what i'm talking about there's something about i I don't know if there was a naivete or just as a kid you know watching these a lot of these 80s so we're just we just went with it i'm gonna beat this dead horse man we you just went with it the suspension of disbelief was there it's just like as if movies had just been invented like all of it's magic i'm just i can't i'm just blown away by moving pictures like all the pretty colors, look how shiny it is. I don't care about the story or substance or whether or not it's believable. It's still just cool to watch a movie because, man, we were forgiving because we're watching this now. And that's what's great about like the movie screen. I mean, that was the brilliance of it is that they point out all the obvious oh, yeah. posts, like the tropes. tropes yep. Like, don't do that. Don't say, I'll be right back. Don't. Here are the rules of a horror movie. If you're a virgin... You're, you know, you're safe. Yes. If you have sex, you're going to die. Like it's all playing, you know, all these things, right? Brilliant. That's such a great movie. That's yeah. a great watch. And some of the stuff is unforgivable when you just wouldn't, a normal human being would be like, I am really scared now. This town is really creeping me out. Can we please? We're just leaving. Yeah. I would be so mad 
at my significant other if they were like, no, I, I just got to go in here and check it out. No, you don't. You just don't. You're an idiot. I'm that leaving you now. Drives jump the wall. I'm going to do stupid things in order to move along the plot. I'm like, come on, be creative and figure out a way why those people have to do what they do. Just don't be like, oh, I'm going to go into town. Don't go into town. I'm going in. Okay. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I, I understand your frustration, man. It was this was just a weird movie. We're at I looked at the clock, it was 43 minutes in. And although we had the murders in the cold open, all the adults get killed in the cafe. Joseph has been killed, as I've talked about 300 times already. The old man at the gas station, you know, he and his dog, Sergeant Sarge, have been killed. Don't kill the dog. Come on, guys. I know. It still feels like a halfway through the movie, like nothing had happened. I don't know. There's something weird about this movie like that. Yeah. I'm just like, when is something going to happen? They were just getting to the town at that point. Mm-hmm. We're halfway through the movie. Oh, the whole thing to another common trope is leaving somebody by themselves, like separating. Yeah. Right. Leaving Vicky alone. Dumbass. Why would you leave her? Don't. You don't ever leave them alone. You always stay together. Why would you leave? Would you leave Hillary alone in the house with a little girl? I'm just going to go walking around town. He literally says, if somebody comes or something happens, just give me a honk. Go out to the car and honk the horn. Because that's going to work. What are you talking about, you big, dumb idiot? Yeah. Because he even asked, like, is it safe? And he's like, oh, it's strange, but it's safe. I'm like, it's strange enough that I'm not splitting up. I'm like, little girl, let's go. Get back in the car and go back to the town. Why do you need to leave her there? And trust me, I'm not saying that our program director, Hillary, couldn't handle herself in a situation like this. Like, I know Hillary. She's a badass. She can protect herself. But I'm just saying. Right. You as a husband, as her partner, wouldn't right. be comfortable leaving your wife. Oh, yeah. Like, she she would call me out on that trope. I'm like, come on. You know we can't split up. <laughs> you you know what? You, you should write a horror movie just for the two of you. She would be great in these types of situations. Yeah. She could call out every little you know thing, trope. She'd be like, nope, this is what always happens. We're not doing that. Yeah. yeah and then you just have like, the killer back there like, damn, man, she's good. Yeah. Shit. No, we're not going in that house. We're leaving right now. Here, if we didn't need more proof that Bert is a freaking moron, this is kind of a cool, this almost had like a zombie effect. I thought this actually was kind of a cool thing is when all the kids are chasing Bert through the town. Oh, yeah. That's kind of. Bert has confronted the kids in the church. And Rachel, who is helping Amos conduct this ritual, and Amos is like cutting himself and bleeding into a bowl, and they're going to drink his blood, and then he's going to. Sacrifice himself to he who walks behind the rose. Well, Bert witnesses some of this and is like, you kids are idiots. And then Rachel stabs him like in the like chest shoulder area. I'm like, ooh, that's not good. No. Uh, He's not incapacitated. Pulls the knife out and is able to just run through the kids. No problem. Runs out of the church. The same kids that were able to murder a whole town. (laughs) They can't catch Bert. Come on. Come on, the kids got soft. Let me tell you, these three three years made him soft. Oh yeah, so <laughs> Bert's like a bowling ball, just knocking down the pins, running through these kids, and runs. But now all the kids are chasing him. And one point, they actually all surround him, and they're calling him Outlander, which is great. I love that. That's cool. See that get t- taps into Outlander. that Outlander. Right, taps into that Stephen King 
mythos lore build world building kind of fantasy like weird terminology like that stuff's cool yeah and so they kind of surround him at one point in the middle of an intersection in this abandoned town and that's kind of creepy and then of course he just runs yeah <laughs> they all start chasing him again yeah like okay uh what are we doing here guys what outlander get the outlander Outlander. I just kept waiting for him to go. You shit on my house. <laughs> oh, you yeah. shit on my house. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping one of us would bring that up. Uh, I had to work it in there. Awesome. Uh, that's a little throwback to Can't Buy Me Love. Best moment in the movie, actually. Yes, great act. It was. Anyway, so my point being is that Malachi, speaking of Courtney Gaines, as Malachi, corners. Bert in a shed. Bert actually has the, the, the drop on him because he's he knows Malachi's approaching and picks up like a crowbar, I think, and hits Courtney Gaines Malachi in the leg. And Malachi's like, whoa, and he falls over. I thought he nut shot him, to be honest, too. I wasn't sure where he had him. Great. Either way, yeah. Malachi's down for the count. What does Bert do in this moment? You got the main bad guy, Malachi, incapacitated, lying in front of you. What do you do? He runs smack into a pillar. He drops the crowbar, stands up. It's like, why do you drop your weapon? Like, what? Even if you decide not to kill him because you feel bad, it's a kid, you don't drop your weapon. Take Malachi hostage. Yeah. Tie him up or something. Beat the crap out of him. Knock him out. Make sure he's unconscious or whatever. But you you got him. And he turns around. He drops his weapon, turns around, hits himself in the head, and runs away. This is a grown-ass man. What are you doing? What ha- What was the thought behind this whole scene? I would have been like, as Peter Horton, I would have been like, I quit, guys. I could just quit. I walk off the set. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. What, why would I do this? So can I kill Joseph? What's, what's another kid under your belt? Come on, man. <laughs> There's more room in the trunk. Yeah. What? Yeah. I couldn't believe that scene. I was like, did that just, what is he? Why? No, I'm out. I got more complaints. Keep going. I'm going to stop because I'm like, we could, we could, yeah, go we could just, hour, okay. but yeah. uh, how about I'll try to do like speed round. Uh, Isaac getting taken, quote unquote, taken, consumed by uh, he who walks by behind the rose because mm-hmm. now Isaac, Malachi has betrayed Isaac and Isaac now is being the one offered. He's up on the corn cross. That's it's just confusing too. Yeah, yeah, and it's confusing. Oh, yeah, the special, the special effects, effects of this supernatural force taking over Isaac as he's on the cross is awful. I think Sarah drew the creature. <laughs> yes, that's what it looks like. I would have believed that, like if that if that actually were part of it, like she was creating, like she was he who oh yeah behind the rose. What a cool twist that would have been. Yes. Like she is the leader. She's the one pulling the strings. Right. And she's kind of showing them what they should be doing. It, the she's doing it all through her drawings. Like it's like voodoo magic. God, that, that movie's already. That would have been awesome. Bill, let's write it. Let's write it. We'll have to call it Children of the Wheat Fields. We'll write it. Oh, and Hillary has to be. We right. got to get her. She will be writing it with us. So Bert now entering the clearing with all the kids and he runs in to save Vicky. Pushes Malachi to the ground, decides to say, any religion without love and compassion is false. It's a lie. Followed by the worst fight scene ever. 
ending with Bert and Malachi, like doing a weak ass, like wrestling thing. Bert gets Malachi on the ground and absolutely bitch slashes him like seven times in a row. It's great. It's a terrible, terrible fight scene. Hey, Job happens to have a torn passage of the Bible from the blue man in his fucking wallet. Oh, what, Job what, had it in his wallet. What the hell is Job doing anyway? What is jo- just where is, what is, around the He's whole just time. narrating. He's just narrating at random spots in the movie. That's what Job does. Yeah, the whole movie. time I kept going like, when are you going to go talk to Bert? What are you waiting for? I, I don't know. What is this demon? What? What is it? Is it supposed to be a giant groundhog? Is that what we're supposed to think? I don't know. Okay. I'll have to all watch right. the other 10 movies to figure this out. So they all retreat to a barn and they blow it. They set the whole cornfield on fire, killing the demon. And what, what happens now to all the kids that's left behind? Cause are they all saved, but not really because Bert and Vicky are taken off. The kids yeah, are just left behind. I hope when they go to the next town. Oh, by the way, uh, we just left like 80 kids back in Gatlin. There's Yeah. You might want to call uh, child services. There's I don't a, know. There, I think we ran across. There's like a car there too. Yeah. There might be a dead kid in the trunk. One of the kids told me that. I wouldn't know personally. That could. Anyway, so that's the whole thing. Let's just, if we want to break that down here for another uh, two hours. Bert and Vicky and the two kids, Sarah and Joe, are the survivors. They all gotten away. They're alive. And now they're going to walk 19 miles to Hemingford. What? Are they going to do once they get there? What are they? Are they? They allude to the fact that they're going to adopt these kids. Yeah. Too. They're like, oh, they could stay with us for a week or maybe a month or maybe longer. <laughs> Guess what? You just started. You're dating. You're not even married. And uh, I, what you're going to adopt these two kids. And once you get to Hemingford, what are you going to tell the cop? Are you going to tell the cops anything? Are you going to report this to the cops? And what happens when they come back and they find your car with a dead kid in the trunk? How are you going to explain any of this? Like, how is this all going to work out? Oh, Jason, I just thought of another hole when you're talking about this. All right. Jason, where, where do your parents live? They live in Colorado. Okay. Your sister? Colorado. Okay. So they live somewhere different. than. So you have family members that live somewhere different than you do, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Malachi. God, my nephew Malachi. I haven't heard from him in two years. Maybe I should go to Gatlin and find him. See what he's up to. I hadn't heard from my brother. Yeah. I mean, your whole family does not live in that one town. It's true. So in the course of three years, they've had to have relatives that live outside of Gatlin. Yeah. What, what happened to my sister? What happened to grandma and grandpa? Why well, haven't heard from them forever? In the research, I totally agree with you, Bill, by the way. It's beyond. It's ludicrous. But I think there's like a deleted scene or there was something they were supposed to film where Bert goes up to the roof of a building and then falls into a whole pile of adult skeletons. Like they've just been piling up bodies. So all these like adults have been coming to this town and they just keep killing all of them. Okay. So maybe they've killed all their other family members that have come to visit. (laughs) Like, Hey, we just thought we'd drop in to check on you since we haven't heard from you in three freaking years. And they're like, no, die. I mean, that's just going to open up a whole can of worms because then it's like, you oh, know, yeah. I go to Gatlin to go and find out what happened to my my nephew. I turn up missing now. Now they got to investigate that. So then someone goes yeah. to see what happened to me. They go missing now. At some point, someone's going to go, there's something kind of weird going on in Gatlin. I don't get it. I can see that headline. And yeah. what's going on in Gatlin? Yep. Yeah, I was just, I was hoping I wanted more from Sarah's gift, the gift of sight. Like, I yes. thought that was going to have more of a, no, like, cool kind of 
impact or somehow really play into the resolution of everything. Because I thought maybe like the lake on fire sort of thing, which was kind of a cool idea that leads to them putting together the piece like the the blue man, the lake on fire, which is the field on, you know, I don't know, that yeah. she would have drawn it and it all tied together neatly. And they kind of half-assed it. Didn't really work for me. That's all I got, man. We can move on. We can be done. I mean, we could just complain and yeah, bitch I think, about. I think everyone's got it. I think they got it. There's there's some issues with this movie. All right. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight the character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Otherwise known as he who walks behind that actor. Yes. Jason, who do you have for he who walks behind that actor? I chose John Philbin, who plays young Amos, who is about to sacrifice himself to he who walks behind the rose. I recognized him. I, I, I did too, but I didn't know what it was from. So I'm glad you did picked him. Yeah, because I was like, you know who I thought he was first? And I was mistaken. I thought he, and I was like, oh, this could be the timing could be right. He played the dad, like uh, Costner's dad in Field of Dreams at the very end of Field of Dreams. Oh, yeah. It does look like him. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I was like, oh, is that where I, I know him from? And I, when I saw the credits that I was like, I know this name, John Philbin. Why do I know this name? And it wasn't from Field of Dreams. It's not the same actor. But he has a small role in Tombstone, which I've seen 157,000 times. And he plays the role, uh, he plays a younger guy, one of the cow, quote unquote cowboys, like the bad guys, oh, named T- Tom McClory. It's a wonderful moment in the film when he's jawn off at Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell. And they're like at the sheriff's station or whatever. And I think what some of the bad guys just got, uh, got off of some, I don't know, there was a court here or whatever. And he mouths off to Wyatt Earp and Earp says something to the effect of, uh, take it easy, son. And he goes, I'm not your son. And Earp grabs the gun from the kid's holster and hits him over the head with uh, the butt of the gun. That's him. That's John oh, Philbin. Wow. That's Tom McClory and Tombstone. Nice. That it's a great good. little moment. And he's a punk in the scene. But I'm like, ah, oh, that's why I know him. Oh, that's good. Because I, I knew who mine was going to be right away. And then so I didn't really bother looking at the other people. But I do remember when I saw him, I was like, I've seen this guy somewhere before. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And he's still working today. So he does. He was also uh, recognizable as Nathaniel from Point Break. He's one of the, I believe, one of the surfers. There you go. The bad guy, the punk surfers, if I'm not mistaken. Jason, you got me on that one. I nowhere close to thinking who you were going to pick. For my Hey, It's That Actor. I went with R.G. Armstrong, who played Deal, the only Absolutely. adult who was able to live on the outskirts of Gatlin at the old rundown gas station with his dog, Sarge, but he eventually gets killed by Malachi. So I guess his deal with Gatlin was he was supplying them the gas. So as long as he was supplying them gas, he was off limits. Armstrong starred in such 80s films as Predator. He was General Phillips, Lone Wolf McQuaid. Which made me think, are we ever, you think, we'll do a Chuck Norris movie on this podcast? Oh, sure. Okay. 
Gotta do it. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, we, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it until I hadn't either until reason, I was doing the research for this. Yeah. I think we have. Yeah. Okay. A little Delta Force. Yeah. And then um, he was in The Best of Times. But what I know him most for is one of my favorite horror series of the 1980s, which was Friday the 13th, the series. And he played Uncle Lewis. He was an old antique dealer who made a pact to the devil to sell cursed antiques. And then he dies and the store is inherited by his niece and cousin. And they find out what his uncle was doing. So they go out and try to retrieve. Each episode, they try to retrieve one of these cursed artifacts that he sold. And they all have like this weird, strange power that will bring people power. And they have to kill someone in order for the power to work. I love the show. It was a cool little series. I think it ran like three or four seasons. That's great. That was a lot of fun. He showed up in like a handful of episodes for it, but he's what I know him most for. So R.G. Armstrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, R.I.P., you know, he had a full life. He lived till 95. Wow. 95 years old. Damn. Way to be, man. There we go. All right. So that uh, leads us to our facts and trivia. Also known as he who walks behind the scenes. Yes. What do we got for he who walks behind the scenes? I'll start with this because I touched upon it, I think, very briefly in the beginning. And you'll appreciate this being a writer yourself. Uh, Stephen King and George Goldsmith. Stephen King having wrote the short story that this is based on. George Goldsmith writing the actual screenplay for this film adaptation. They debated over Goldsmith's approach during a phone conversation because Stephen King was arguing that Goldsmith didn't understand the horror genre. Because he wasn't happy with what Goldsmith was doing with the script and what he was kind of where he was taking this short story, what direction he was taking it. And Goldsmith countered saying that Stephen King didn't recognize that the film is a visual external experience, unlike novels and short series stories, which are internal and only visual in the reader's mind. So I just thought that was interesting because I, I have to, you know, I can see it from both Right. Points of view here. And that's why people always say the book is better because you know what the protagonist or antagonist is is thinking, what's going through their head and makes things way more clear for you than sometimes things you can do visually. So that makes sense. And the the big issue, the issue is that King had written a draft of this, the first draft. And I guess the first, what is it? Like the first 30 or 50 pages or something, something like that was all... Vicky and Bert arguing in the car. Yeah. Great. So we can see why that wasn't going to work. No. Uh, Children of the Corn is a short story by Stephen King, first published in the March 1977 issue of Penthouse. Yes. And later collected in King's 1978 collection, Night Shift. And you can actually see the book in the movie. It's in the dashboard of uh, Vicky and Bert's car. They have a copy of it there. So a little little product placement. And then speaking of the short story itself, um, of course, there is some minor changes, which reading what they were, I kind of wish they went that, went that way because Vicky and Bert do not make it out of the short story. They both die. Vicky ends up dying on the cross of corn. and The then, corn cross. The corn cross, yes. And then when Bert tries to save her, he who walks, who walks behind the rose takes Bert out. So, yeah. So, Bert and Vicky do not make it through the story. Which I think would have made it better if the same thing had happened in the movie, to be honest. Well, I think Bert should have died and or should have been killed by. Or at least have Bert die 
right. maybe on the cross. And if Vicky got away, I would have been okay with that. One of them should not have made it out. Well, Bert certainly should have died just for being dumb. Yes. I mean, if, if nothing else. Yeah. So there you go. So, yeah, I thought this was kind of cool. So John Franklin, who plays Isaac, who's supposed to be nine years old at the beginning of the movie. I love this. Yeah. He was 24. (laughs) He was 24. He had me fooled. I thought maybe 14, 15 at best. Yeah. Like he's a teenager. But yeah. What are we? What? What? I don't know. That's kind of creepy unto itself. Right. He played cousin it in the Adams family. Yes, he was. I I saw that, and he was also in at least one sequel, John Babyface Franklin. Yes, yeah, I know. Yeah, I saw one of the covers that he was. He was back on the cover, so I was like, "Ooh, might need to watch that one." Not. All right, anything else? We did say this spawned more sequels. Yet more sequels than any other Stephen King movie. Uh, The here's just a little fun personal attachment I have is the film takes place in 1980 like the fiction. And then three years later on October 3rd, 1983. Yes. Which is uh, two days from now. Good timing. We didn't, that kind of happened by accident. We didn't actually plan it that way. That was lucky time on our part. Also October 3rd happens to be my birthday. Yes. Happy early birthday. Thanks man. And uh, I appreciate that. I'm really creeped out by that too. (laughs) I don't know if this is true or not. Courtney Gaines as Malachi won the role. By using a prop knife to hold a casting assistant hostage at the audition. Yeah, I saw that story too. I thought that was kind of strange. I don't know Especially when it's your like film debut. I think you get charges pressed at that point. Like you get in trouble for that. I don't know. Like if they asked him to do it, I was like, oh, okay, that would make more sense. But to come in to do that, yeah. And by the the last little fun fact I had come across was um I talked about one of my favorite scenes being with uh, that poor, poor son of a bitch, Joseph, uh, that they hit with the car. And Vicky has that little dream sequence where she goes to look at his body on the ground. He's covered in the blanket. She pulls the blanket back and there's a jump scare. Joseph leans up. Well, Linda Hamilton was told that it was a mannequin under the blanket. So when she goes up and pulls the blanket back and there's the actor who Jonas Marlowe, who plays Joseph, literally leaps up at her. Her reaction is absolutely 100% genuine. That's awesome. That's cool. So she freaks out. All right. So the uh, last fact for me, uh, it's because there's a personal attachment to this. So, you know, we talk about in the beginning where uh, Deal tells them to go to Hemingford um, instead of to Gatlin. Well, Hemingford is actually used in another one of Stephen King's book, which right. is The Stand. And cool. I remember back in uh, 94 when they were doing the adaption for this for CBS as this part miniseries. Yep. I was all excited because they had done it a couple of years earlier and I loved that. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to watch Stan. So, you know, I recorded it and I didn't get to it for like three or four months later. And I'm watching it and I'm watching what I think is the final part of it. And I'm like, man, they're really going to wrap this up pretty quickly not knowing there was additional night of the show that I never taped. Oh no. So I have seen the first two thirds (laughs) of the Stan miniseries. I have never seen the end. Even to to today, I have never seen the, well, I know what to get you for your birthday now, Bill. I appreciate that. 
So I would, yeah. And then I was like, Oh, I got to go back. And then we have to watch all six hours all over again. Cause I, I really don't remember. All I remember is Gary Sinise is that that's all I can remember. Oh, and Molly Ringwald, who we just talked about in breakfast club. Couple that's weeks right. Ago, so. Yeah. But yeah, I've never seen all of the stand mini series and I never read the book either. So I'm totally in the dark on how that all finishes, but yeah, I guess it finishes in Hemming. I remember enjoying that mini, the stand mini series. I thought it was, yeah, right. I was really liking it. Like, it's then, not like the best thing ever, but I, like, no. I thought it was decent. Yeah. I was like, I got into it. And then I was just like, wow, they're really going to wrap this up. You know, cause That's I was like, hilarious. You're looking at the clock going, no well, this is funny. Cause back then, cause we had one of the top loader. Oh yeah. yeah, sure. yeah. So you could actually look at the tape and you're like, wow, this tape's going to run out soon. <laughs> and then it's like it's like tomorrow what's the exciting conclusion i'm like, like what, do you mean? what do you mean there's an exciting co- i thought this was the exciting conclusion oh i was so pissed i was so pissed oh poor bill oh well yeah because then i don't think it went on video forever and then at that point when it did i was like i don't remember any of this anyway so yeah, i had to start the whole thing someday it's on my list that's great uh so let's move on to uh box office this movie was released on March 9th, 1984 on a budget of under a million dollars. What a surprise. Um, it grossed 14.6 million domestically. It debuted Dang. at number four at the box office, opening the same week as Splash. Um, the movie actually increased its ticket sales by 35% in its second week of release, even though it dropped to number five on the box office charts. It was out of the top 10 by its fifth week of release. Uh, moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of the film was unanimous. Jason, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I think both thumbs way up. And sorry. Oh, no. Yeah, they gave it two thumbs down. Gene nominated as one of the worst movies of the year with Roger agreeing and that the film was too violent and had no explanation of a story. Kind of. Well, we didn't say it was too violent, but yes. No, you know, we didn't. We didn't really talk a lot about the horror aspects of the film, to be honest, because we are getting into our uh, bladder series. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be scary stuff. And there are, we did talk, we covered the jump scares in this movie. I was expecting a bit more gore and there was some in the opening sequence, but not a great deal afterward. Again, the most burrows, the real sequences with hitting Joseph at the car. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was overly violent, but again, at that time, I, I don't know. I don't know for a horror movie. And we've already started, but let's, uh, yeah, let's move on to additional comments and questions. So what are, is there anything left to cover on Children of the Corn? And hopefully we got some questions. Though. I have, I don't have any additional, I've already covered, yeah, my, my additional thoughts. I just have questions. All right. Yeah. Hit me some questions. Sure. Um, do you think there are people out there that now have an aversion to corn because of this movie? Hmm. I think people have a version of corn. I'm sure there is. I mean, there's a phobia for everything. I'm sure there's some kind of corn phobia. I don't think it's from this movie. I just wondered if there's like one person out there that just it like this movie freaked them the F out. And that just like, you know what? I can't even I don't I can't look at corn the same. 
after it. I just can't do it. Yeah. Can't go near corn. You know what? Or like driving through corn. Like you make you said yeah. make jokes when you drive through cornfields, but like if somebody's really it's like Jaws, right? Can't go in the water again. Yes. Can't go in the ocean again. Can't go near cornfields. Yeah. You know what? Now you put mathematically, it's it's possible. <laughs> because it, there's gotta be at least one person. So before <laughs> before watching this movie, like it's described as a supernatural horror film. Yes. Do you think before seeing the movie, just based on the title alone, that people thought the corn actually gave birth to these kids? Oh, yeah. I believe that. <laughs> I, I totally that. believe that. Children that are birthed from corn. Corn, corn babies? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally serious, Children, Jason. Like, I, I, like, oh, my God. Is this about, like, corn? They're ch- I don't get it. Like, these kids were born... Are they corn kids? Yes. Like their bodies are stalks. <laughs> I know your question is kind of tongue in cheek, but no, I, yeah. I believe it. I it just made me think. I'm like looking at the title going, I wonder if people thought that. Yeah. I'm disappointed that we never got to see anyone actually eat corn in this movie. I know. But I mean, I guess that's the point, though, is the cornfields are all, all of it, the corn's dead, though. Like it's a, like a drought. Like he who walks behind the rows killed all the corn. I don't know. Yeah, you would think they'd have like the like their big festival, their fe- like the sacrifice. It'd be the feast of the corn or something like that. Mm-hmm. They'd have you know corn fritters, just anything you can make out of corn. I, I actually had was going to say here's a I felt like this film did give corn, corn a bad name because I do love corn, corn on the cob, corn oh, yeah. mashed potato, popcorn. Yes, the bean bag game, cornhole. Yep, it's such a terrible name for a game. Oh, <laughs> it is. Makes me think of my one of my favorite quotes of all time from a movie called Office Space. Yes. What is Buddy Ron Lings is going off to jail and he's like, I right, mean, watch a cornhole, bud. Yep. Watch a cornhole, man. That was the exact quote, but it just cracks me up. Every I'm time. glad we got that in. <laughs> watch a cornhole, man. So uh did you have any? I've got more questions, man. <laughs> It's one of my favorite quotes of all time, man. Such a great movie. Shout out to Office Space. God, Jason, I saw that, I think, the second day of release. There was only six people in the theater. Oh, sure. And I was just like, oh, my God, I've seen that movie. Oh, yeah. It's got to be in my top 10 most watched. Sure. It's still, oh, man. I love that movie. Yeah. Now, Now all I can think is Office Space scenes and quotes. Hey, man, it varies depending on where you're doing your research, what you're looking up here, but Stephen King has approximately 86 film adaptations Jeez. from his written works. Some, depending on where you look, it's either less or more, but it's a ton. Yeah, I think Children's Corn was actually the eighth. So that shows how many have been done since then. If you're yeah. saying 80, whatever. So I'm just going to list a few. The Shining uh, Dr. Sleep, which came out in 2019, which I've heard really good things about. I need to see Misery, Carrie, Christine, Maximum Overdrive, The Mist, Stand By Me, It Chapter One, It Chapter Two, Pet Cemetery, Green Mile, Dark, Dark Tower, which was awful. Cujo, Thinner, Dreamcatcher, Dolores Claiborne. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And this is not even counting the TV adaptations like you'd mentioned, The Stand. Uh, they did The Shining to uh, Tommy Knockers, uh, It, like you mentioned. Uh, so... This just begs the question, what is your favorite or what do you feel is the best Stephen King film adaptation? You got to go Shawshank. I don't even know if there's a close second. Like Stand By Me is really good. Misery is good. It's kind of funny because it's it's non-horror ones that mm-hmm. are the good ones. Green Mile. 
I think I have to agree with you. I would go Shawshank and then The Shining probably, but um, well, you know, I can't do The Shining yet. So right, I actually thought about that too. But yeah, um, I think you make a great point. I was thinking the same thing because when you talk about the horror fantasy films, they're just it takes it's such a difficult thing to balance and do correctly with his type type of storytelling to get it right. You know, it's just it's really really hard to do, and it's been done. Like it, I thought it chapter one, I thought was pretty solid. The recent right. one, the recent uh, iteration, chapter two, not so much. Chapter one, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, because I would say if it was horror, I would have to, I guess, go misery. I guess that's the closest mm-hmm. thing you could say for horror. So I got I'm going to follow that up with a trivia question or two for you. Uh, okay. So we know that we're talking about film adaptations. What author? has the most film adaptations of all time. It's a lot more obvious than you would think, but it just... Is it, I mean, are we counting like comics? Could we say like, like Stan Lee kind of thing? It, yeah, and I was just going to say, it could be alive or dead, but it, it's just overall, yeah, author. Yeah, Stan Lee would, would count. How about the Brothers Grimm because of all the nursery? Absolutely. Okay. They're high on the list. Got someone more than them? It's going to be the most obvious thing you could even, but it's, it's so obvious. You're not going to think of it. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's so obvious. I'm not going to know. Yeah. Go ahead. Make me feel stupid. Bill Shakespeare, William Shakespeare. Oh shit. Yes. With approximately 410 adaptations on film. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Follow up. uh, But you, you rattle like Stan Lee is in there, you know, brothers Grimm. Absolutely. Good calls. Like it makes you think that, right? Yeah. So look up that list. Those are some fun lists. Because when you at. said Stephen King was already at 86, and I'm like, shit, there's more than him? That's Yeah, that's when you're like, I got to think he out He has the most adaptations of living authors. Okay. Who do you think, next to Stephen King, is the second most adapted author? Living author. Living author. Man. I don't know, because I'm thinking all these authors. I'm like, they haven't done that many that go to the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Is it even a close second? No, it is not. Not the second author on the list with 11 adaptations is Nicholas Sparks. Oh, yeah. I never would have got that. Yeah. That's Notebook, right? Yep. Yeah. Nope. A lot of the other kind of romantic. uh, Yeah. I was trying to think of more like the action adventure kind of authors. And I'm like, oh, they always do like three or four. And then it kind of peters out. Yeah. So. It's some fun stuff to to look up some re- yeah, that's pretty research. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's my my last question for you. Man. What's your favorite horror film with food in the title? Oh, geez. I couldn't really. I I came up with two. <laughs> there's a lot. There's some really obscure ones out there. If you look it up, I um, it was harder to find than I thought. You can research it. Would hard candy be considered? I mean, that's more of a. Film. Oh, there you go. That was. I actually have candy in it, but in a different. Title Candyman. Oh, I have to admit, I have not seen Candyman yet. You haven't seen either version. The, no. the newest one is still, I, I know. think, in That's the theaters. A, yeah, I'm in the doghouse and not haven't seen that one yet. Oh, it's all good. Yeah, that one's the fir- the first one is. A, uh, I know that's what one says. I, I yeah. don't know why I have not creepy. seen that one. Tony Todd. Yeah, yeah, I love Tony Todd. And is it Virginia Madsen? Isn't she? Yeah, yeah, that's Cabrini Green too. Chicago. Yeah, there's some. That's bad on me. Going. That's definitely bad on me. How about? Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, Attack <laughs> of the Killer Tomatoes. Da, 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 da. I have seen that. 
how did I think that one? Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. So I'm sure there's several out, out, more out there. I And Return of the Killer Tomatoes with George Clooney. There you go. I was thinking, maybe like, I don't know if pumpkin counts, but like, just put pumpkin. Oh, head yeah. Pumpkin head. Yeah. Pumpkin head's not good. <laughs> Sorry. So, something else to think about. All right. Well, that's all I got for questions. Right? All right. Let's, yeah. Let's take it to final thought. What are our final thoughts on Children of the Corn besides run out as quick as you can? And, well, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to buy this film. God, Spend just, all your money on this movie. Yeah. Go stream this. Well, you can watch it for free on Amazon if you have a subscription. Yes. Or Tubi, as I discovered. Tubi had commercials, but you still watch it. Um, you know what? Uh, you know, that's kind of the what the, the feeling that this movie left me with. I didn't like this movie. I thought it had potential. It lacks, as I believe, was it Siskel that said there was lack of explanation? Yeah, uh, I would have to agree with that. That was Ebert, at, or was it Ebert? Okay, so yeah, it's just it's missing a lot. It there's like holes, complaints all over the place because it just a lot of it doesn't make sense and it's frustrating. You don't know why anything is happening, but still has some decent scares. Not a, I don't. I just. I guess I'm wanting more for my horror movie i but it'll be interesting now going forward in our uh, splatter series man because going to some of the classics too you know you, you have these high expectations you know sometimes you have an affinity as nostalgic attachment to the, the old classic horror movies and do that they, they're not going to be you know what's coming so they may not be as scary but i think this would have been scary as a kid and i probably wouldn't show this to a young child for sure that might this would give a kid nightmares still i think to this day it just doesn't hold up just doesn't hold up as a good horror movie in my opinion i don't know i'm having a hard time recommending this one man i'm glad i saw it it has a cult following i know part of me is almost like yeah i would recommend this from 12 to 15 year olds i'm just like an r-rated movie yeah you can't do that right and it's like do i really want to invest my time and watch the other movies to maybe fill in all this stuff i don't understand does it will it do it for me but the fact that they made 10 more there's there's something about this that people are watching it and people like it i like the premise but yeah i mean i wasn't like oh my god this is the worst this is definitely not the worst stephen king movie i've seen that hands down still goes to uh dream catcher which is <laughs> god awful so this is better than that but I would say pass. I mean, if you watch it, you watch it. That's fine. But you definitely don't need to. There's way th- better yeah. Stephen King movies out there. Well said. And I think I'm going to go back to an earlier recommendation I made. It's just this would be great for a party. If you're doing a little oh, yeah. uh, like a Halloween horror f- film festival with your friends. Yeah. Put it on. Have some fun with it. Just have fun with it. Yeah. That's the best way to probably do it. Just watch some friends and just bust on it left and right. You know, appreciate it for what it is. Can't take it seriously. Uh, has its place. Wouldn't recommend. Don't pay money for it. Don't watch it by yourself. It's not worth your time. Watch it at a party atmosphere and have fun with it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I got, I think, regarding that. All right. Okay, good. Um, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to our first podcast for Splatter Cinema Month. 
next week we'll be discussing 1983 slasher film Sleepaway Camp starring Felisa Rose and Karen Fields as always please subscribe give us a review and rate us you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com please send us your feedback questions or recipes to share you can follow us on Facebook at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s until then have a totally great week everyone Thanks for staying up with us. Watch out for you going home, buddy. Good night, world. Outlander!